This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by the new Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 Sport Bike Tire and Fly Racing. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast. I have to say, after extensive legal advice, we've been advised not to ask David Emmett about his offshore accounts and holdings, but make sure to check out Pandora's uh, matters.com. And uh, David, you've got a watertight alibi for the money just resting in your accounts, I take it. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the uh, grand total sum is about $0. So um, that makes me pretty much immune to any investigations. <laughs> that's a what I've said that story a few times as well. Financial investigations, we must add. Oh, yeah, oh yeah, of that's, yeah, that's right. That's at, at least it's one off of the list. There, there are some serious allegations that have been thrown at uh, David Emmett over the years, but uh, hopefully he's able to get away from this one and uh, we're able to keep him on the Paddock Pass podcast. It's purely coincidence that this year is the year we've added a lot of sponsors to uh, the list for the show but uh, certainly nothing for anyone to check into on that um, Adam, it's been uh, pretty hectic for you of late obviously a lot of MXGPs, MotoGP as well and uh, magazines to get out so uh, I'd say you're pretty pleased that uh, we're at least midweek now I'd like to know if it's allegations or charges, actually, Dave. Uh, please expand a little bit on the, the current legal status or of your, well, the status of your freedom. Now, it's been crazy, um, what, five consecutive weekends and six to go. So it's, uh, you know, you do get to a point where you're like motorcycle racing, uh, don't, don't eat yourself. Um, yeah, it's been pretty hectic. But, uh, Austin was, um, a curious, beast wasn't it i mean the race wasn't anything to shout about but it was kind of interesting to see MotoGP not in any kind of familiar european circuit that was uh that was refreshing yeah it was good to see a flyaway i'm not too sure neil how you felt about uh, having to get on a flight for what 12 hours or whatever but i have to ask you one thing did you pass or fail the howdy test whenever you were down in texas um i think i'm going to fail the howdy test by asking what is the howdy test well, there you go then. Any of our listeners in Texas would be very disappointed with you, Neil. But overall, how was the experience down in Austin? It was good, Steve, yeah. Um, it was kind of fun to go somewhere, like Adam said, a bit different, even though we obviously have been to Austin a few times in the past. Um, but yeah, just to go back and, um, you know, I think what you read on the news about things that are happening in Texas leads you to paint this picture of everything in Austin being a bit wild and uh frontier-esque um but um no we found lots of people there just um much like we're experiencing europe at the moment starting to explore new realms of freedom after basically a year and a half and um it seemed to be it seemed to be pretty cool yeah things were things were picking up things were i wouldn't say banging uh in in austin city but um you know there was definitely a bit of a buzz about it yeah, I have to say, I'm looking forward to getting on a flight and going to Argentina now in a few days' time as well. That's our first flyaway in World SBK, so that's going to be fun. Um, David, we did get in quite a few questions from listeners for this show, and totally unrelated to the financial irregularities that you've been linked with, we do have a question in from Johnny Real, and, and Johnny's asking just about, you know, have you actually gone to test ride anything yet? And I think his emojis really make it perfectly clear how he feels about this. It's a shrugging man. And uh, I, I find it very difficult to argue with uh, Johnny being this concerned about how long it's taken you to actually get up off your ass and go and ride something. Yeah, take your time, Dave, both for the answer and for the, the actual act itself. You photoshopped a bike, Dave, at your house to be able to see what it would appear like. You know, there was an easier solution. 
It, it, but yeah, but that one's much more expensive, though, isn't it? I mean, you know, that would that would um, involve me handing over money. Um, no, I mean, I might actually go ride a bike uh, later this week, but I shall uh, keep everyone. If I do actually do it, I've got. I will keep everyone updated. Yeah, but surely you know you don't need any kind of invitation to test a motorcycle. Surely you you'd be outside the shop waiting for it to open. I mean, most people would be like, "Come on." You, there's no rush. There's no rush. Honestly, I mean, you know, bikes are only going to get cheaper over the um, over the next few uh, weeks. We're going into the uh, into the period where dealers are getting more and more desperate to actually sell a motorbike as the uh, uh, as the year closes. Dutchman in being tight, shocker. <laughs> this is a, a shocking revelation for everyone. Did we did actually get a question from Philbert Wang as well? And obviously, I'm pretty sure that uh, Philbert is looking to assist you to be able to build up your resources to go and buy a bike. Because the question was, can you ask David to get his predictions in earlier about who's not going to win the races so I have time to put money down on them? Obviously, they want to give you 10% of that, Dave. Well, obviously. But I mean, like, I got my uh, prediction in very, very early because at the start of the week, I said Mark Marquez wasn't going to win. And then on Saturday night, I said Mark Marquez was going to win. That wasn't me hedging my bets by any way, shape or form, of course. That was uh, just uh, uh, adjusting my viewpoint once I'd seen the facts on the ground. Well, it was a bit like that at the weekend, Dave, for me as well, because I put a bet on that there was going to be no, there'd be no rain in Portugal for the races on Sunday. And then I woke up in the morning and it was absolutely lashing rain for the morning warm-up session. I was thinking, oh, no, I've lost my bet. So I went and I gave the TV director, I think it was five euro. It was painful to give him the five euro, to be honest. But uh, then I noticed that I had given it to him after the warm-up session. And then by the time we got to the Super Bowl race, it didn't actually rain again. So even though it was a wet race, I think I've got a legal claim to get my fiver back. So I'll put that fiver towards your bike fund as well, Dave. And uh, then, you know, you've got no excuses. I'm sure Dave will be able to recommend a good lawyer, Steve. He almost certainly would. Lots of experience for the Emmett in that matter. But uh, tell you what, you've also got a bit of experience, Dave, in MotoGP matters as well. Obviously, that's uh, no pun on your former website name. But uh, we saw that in Coda, Fabio Quattararo put one hand on the World Championship and he can wrap it up at the next round in Misano just by beating Paco Bagnaia. And then in Moto2, we saw that Raul Fernandez is close to within nine points of Remy Gardner. He won the race. Remy non-scored after a crash. And then in Moto3, we saw multiple red flags. We saw Izan Gavaro go from hero to zero to hero in the space of only a couple of minutes. Pedro Acosta was lucky to walk away from a big crash, still get some points. But the championship battle's closing up in that now as well. So it looks like we're getting to that stage now in the season where Moto2 and Moto3, certainly a lot to play for. MotoGP could be wrapped up pretty soon. Yeah, I mean, yeah, MotoGP was interesting because uh, that was Fabio Quartararo really establishing his sort of grip on the championship. Uh, but, you know, Moto3 and Moto2, I think they're tougher championships to win in an extent because the riders are so much less ex ex uh, experienced. And that really, really closed uh, closed things up a, a, a lot. E even though Pedro Acosta has got 30, 30 points of advantage in the championship, I'm not sure um, that it's anywhere near done. Yeah, it looks pretty shaky when he's only had about 35 points in the last five rounds. So it looks like it's going to go all the way to the last round, hopefully in that championship. But we're going to kick off as usual with all of us giving our moments of the weekend. So Neil, you were on the ground in Texas. So what was your moment of the weekend? Um, I think my moment of the weekend, Steve, has to be um, the camera that showed us that the three guys that were caught up in that horrific Moto3 crash uh, were up and walking and standing and basically high-fiving each other after the incident. Um, because whenever I saw that 
uh, crashed live, I was really fearing the worst. And obviously, it had been quite a somber atmosphere coming into Coda with the events of Hareth, um, still very fresh in the memory. Um, and uh, yeah, the Moto 3 battle over a five lap shootout was a bit sketchy. Um, and uh, obviously, the move from Dennis Onju was just unacceptable, not cool at all. And, um, you know, just the three guys so 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 lucky just to get up and walk away i mean pedro acosta i think was maybe the main the main one or the one that you worried for most just because he got f flung into the the trackside barrier but all up on okay um it looked as though andrea Mino might uh, need to you know have a bit of time away from the whole thing to take it all in and, and, and come to terms with what happened but um yeah great to see that three guys basically no injuries yeah, obviously we're going to talk about this in a lot more detail over the Moto2 and Moto3 follow-up show later in the week. But uh, David, just uh, what was your quick thoughts on what we saw in that crash? Um, I, yeah, it was just, it was absolutely terrifying. I don't think, th the worst thing about it is it could happen sort of any weekend. It wasn't even a particularly, uh, you know, a, a real Moto3 crash, if you like. There wasn't sort of 17 riders all abreast, all trying to take the same bit of uh, tarmac. Um, but it was it, it was an extremely aggressive and unnecessary move by Unchu, and I think the two race ban is um, uh, it, it is good more for the example than it sets than to punish Unchu specifically. Yeah, we actually saw it in the Supersport 300 class this weekend in Portugal as well. We red flagged the Super Bowl session because riders were cruising around waiting for a tow. So it's pretty clear that race directions and the FAM stewards are going to come down a lot harder on, on riding standards. And Adam, what did you think of the, the two-race ban for Dennis Andrew? Well, I mean, first of all, with the accident, Steve, it was one of those where it kind of happens in installments. You know, you see the the impact, then you see the first kind of repercussion, then the second repercussion, then you see Pedro Acosta flying meters and scraping the armco. It was one of those where you're you're open mouth for a, for a period of time. But I don't. I mean, I think Onchu is a victim a little bit of uh, um, how can we say people being slightly fed up with the state of play going on in moto three uh two races does seem quite severe if you do i think it was quite telling as well the the camera footage or the you know the tv footage of him in the pit box you know they they focused on him and he ducked behind the screen I, he clearly didn't want to be you know on in shot uh, with people analyzing his reactions but then when you know he came back around later on he was clearly explaining to his crew chief or one of his mechanics that he was just tucked into the bubble um, you know, he kind of made this sort of gesture and, and you know, you do wonder how much he, he meant to cause that that kind of uh, reaction. Of course, he could have nothing about what he could do in terms of affecting the whole pack. But I do wonder if, you know, there was any real bad intention there and whether the punishment really fits the crime. Yeah, obviously, we're going to talk about this in more detail in the follow up show. So make sure to check that out in the next couple of days. Just as a, a little bit of a, a point of order on it as well, we had talked a lot about this on the Superbike show last week in uh, after the Hareth crash for Dean Vinales. But uh, unfortunately, we had a technical issue, so we weren't able to actually publish that show. So myself and Gordo will also be recording another Superbike show this week. Looking back on Portimao, we'll try and include a little bit about uh, the Supersport 300 clash with Vinales as well. But uh, we'll move on to uh, David, your moment of the weekend. Uh, well, I, I don't really have one moment. I have five moments, and those are the five moments in which Alicia Spargo... That's not the name of this segment, Dave. <laughs> in which case, it'll be the, the it'll be Alicia Spargo's fifth crash, which I think was during the race. I can't remember if it was during the race um, or, or during... Yeah, I mean, he fell off so often. Um, 
obviously no Maverick Vinales because of what had happened to uh, Dean, uh, the his cousin. Um, but even that, I don't think it made a difference. Um, it did seem like Alicia Spagro was struggling more with the bumps than other bikes, and it makes you wonder whether they set the bike up too stiff or something, or they couldn't get it to go to to ride over the bumps as as well, or if it was just uh, Alicia Spargro, because Alicia was probably the most outspoken rider about rider safety and about uh, the the safety of the track. So maybe it was just him you know, just not feeling the track and, and uh, suffering as a result. Dave, just to ask you a question as well that came in from one of our listeners as well. Todd Shute was asking, is it worth having a gap year and MotoGP goes to Indy so that Coda can be fully revised into a, an acceptable state for both F1 and MotoGP? Or is it a case of we're just going to obviously have to to see what the track can actually do. I think we have to wait and see what the track ha uh, can do and wants to do. Um, the ultimatum was basically, you know, resurface turn two through turn 10 at, at the very minimum. Uh, from what I was hearing, the track will want to do that. Obviously, F1 have got to go there as well. And F1 are not, uh, you know, F1 drivers have also been very vocal about uh you know, bumps at tracks and all the rest of it. Uh, and I would imagine, I mean, without having seen, you know, obviously not watching F1, but I would imagine those F1s over the, those F1 cars over some of the undulations and whoops and bumps would be very hairy indeed. Manor GP needs to go back to Laguna Seca, uh, but it won't. No, no, no. Laguna's a terrible track. The problem with America is that Coda is actually the only viable option for them indy is an option obviously enough it's a it's a great facility but coda is the premier racing facility in the u.s you can't race at somewhere like laguna especially for motor gp it just doesn't have the facilities there i love going to laguna it's a great track but it's decades out of date at this stage and you'd love to see world sbk go back but definitely not for motor gp at this stage then you look at other venues there's a load of great circuits in america a load of great track layouts not too many places that actually have the facilities that you need as well and that's the biggest issue they're going to face yeah the the goodness sake is a great track for 250s it's not a great track for motor gp bikes you know they barely get into fifth gear um there is one fantastic corner there where turn one and that's about it um and it's dangerous and it's not big enough and it can't afford it and they still owe money on uh, previous running of the uh, of the circuit and all the rest of it there are some fantastic tracks i mean you know like road america would be outstanding for a motor gp bike um except for the fact that it's completely unsafe uh, for for riding at that sort of speed I think the one thing to always remember as well is though if we go to Laguna and this is why it was great for Superbikes you were able to play golf at Pebble Beach a few days in California beforehand I think it was pretty much ideal I don't know I don't know you know what the issue you could possibly have Dave would be good vegan food out there as well Dave ideal for you good fish oh yeah yeah I mean yes yeah I mean I would love to go to Laguna Seca I just don't want to actually watch any racing there that's fair enough. Um, I, I think uh, Stuart Ellis asked a question on a similar vein as well. So Stuart, I think we've been able to answer your question as well. Obviously, he wasn't asking in terms of the vegan food options close to Laguna Seca, but uh, it, it was very similar to that. Adam, what about you? What was your moment of the weekend? 
again, quite a few to pick from. Uh, not like Alesh's crashes, but um, I'm going to go for the Mila Mia part four or part five running, uh, you know, in a year where we've kind of lacked any kind of close rivalries in MotoGP. These two have a bit of a spiky relationship. Um, I love the cool down lap and the, the little dialogue where, you know, Joan Mia was quite contrite and was offering an apology for the, the incident where he bumped into to Mila and effectively caused him to lose fourth position. I know Mir was uh, sanctioned and penalised one place post-race, but, uh, you know, you couldn't really hear or lip-read what Jack was saying to the Suzuki rider, but uh, it was pretty much like, you're going to get it next time, mate, so look out. Um, And you just kind of think, you know, in one hand, it seems highly exaggerated, but it's great just to see that kind of uh, emotion and, um, you know, just goes to show how high the adrenaline is running in MotoGP. It was kind of cool. Um, Some people in the Mir camp, some people in the Miller camp, um, you know, some people questioning Miller as well, saying, you know, does he really have the the coconuts to sort of go in hard in the battle and make uh, deliver the results? Um, Mia certainly seems to have no problems shoving the Suzuki somewhere where it has no right to be. But, uh, you know, I, this one's going to rumble on, I think. Yeah, I, I thought Simon Crafar, when he analysed the, the the incident, was absolutely spot on, saying, you know, that's what you got to do when your bike is slower than someone else's. You've got to try and take any gap. Um, Miller compared it to the Jordi Torres Dominic Egater crash, which I think is, um, shall we say, overegging the put? Yeah, overegging the pudding a little. Um, uh, it, it was nowhere near as egregious as that, but uh, it, I, yeah, I mean, mere had to try and make a pass and I think being given a, a, a one position penalty is right afterwards he was sort of like saying oh they can't be the same stewards as uh, uh, as judged the, uh, the the incident with where Jack Miller ran into me at Qatar must have been di- must have been different stewards um, so he was still sort of a, a little bit ripe about that and don't forget you know these the, these two are part of the Andorra clique um, so they're probably potentially seeing each other socially or within the same kind of training venues up there. Um, you know, and your point about Alicia Spargaro, uh, I think Alex Rins um, had met, you know, Dean Mignales, uh, you know, when he was training up there, when Maverick was living there. So it's quite possible that, you know, Mia Miller and all these guys had some sort of interaction as well, Dave. So maybe Alesh was quite affected by by the, the loss, um, especially, you know, how it's affected uh, Maverick and his bizarre decision let's say to get on a plane and get halfway to to cotton and then decide he didn't want to race we're going to take a break on the paddockcast podcast and when we come back we're going to look at some of the big talking points from the weekend at coda the pirelli diablo rosso 4 is the newest addition to the popular diablo rosso family and is specifically designed for sport bike hyper naked and crossover motorcycles Giving riders a superior level of grip, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 gives precise feedback and control in both wet and dry conditions, raising the benchmark for high-performance sport tires on the road. Available in a wide range of sizes, the Pirelli Diablo Rosso 4 is the culmination of nearly 20 years of testing and R&D in the factory, on the roads, and on the track with World Superbike. Visit your local dealer or online retailer and pick up a set today. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. We're going to move on to the big talking points from the weekend as well. We've obviously looked at the moments of the weekend. But David, what was your your big talking point, the big thing you're taking from Coda? 
Well, the big thing that I'm taking from Cota is that um, it seems to produce incredibly tedious races. Um, I mean, it was absolutely astonishing race by Mark Marquez. Really, really controlled. Superb ride. Uh, same for Fabio Quartararo. Uh, just really, really outstanding uh, ride to hold on to second. But the top 10 were covered by something like 21 seconds, um, which is, uh, I, I was looking it up last night, I think the third biggest gap in a dry race over the, uh, uh, over the, course, of, over the course of this year. Uh, and it's usual. I think the... the the, the 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 top tens get really really spread out. The the first four runnings, it was like forty seconds or something. Um, it it's a fantastic facility. It's a fantastic location. Um, th- there's a lot to like about it, but the problem with the layout is that it does it is not conducive to good racing because if you make a mistake, it's for a start. It's a long lap, two minutes and what is it two o two two o three. Uh, or 204 in the race, 204, 205, so they were running. Um, if you make one mistake, especially in that first section, if you're a little bit wide out of turn two, then that's it. You know, you are, you, you are stuffed for uh, the, the next seven, eight corners, and you end up losing so much time. And it's really difficult to make that time up again uh, from the person in front of you, especially, you know, the back straight and all the rest of it. Paul Espargaro was saying, you know, he lost, basically lost three seconds on two laps by making, because he made one mistake and then uh, uh, out of turn two and lost a second and a half uh, uh, trying to uh, trying to get that back. And then the next lap, he pushed to try and make up some of that, uh, some of the ground. And then, um basically lost even more ground because he made another mistake so mistakes are punished very very severely and you you never get a chance to make good on them i think um it's always well this year the the bumps were were a real standout you could just see watching the the pictures on tv how bad they were but i think it's it's always been quite a bumpy track surface certainly in the last five or six years and that i think is another factor in the racing too just because the riders were complaining about how difficult it was to be consistent with the uh, the kind of severity of the bumps you could do two three laps um, but you know just the the nature of of the bumps and the size of them meant that if you did make one mistake it was a it was quite a big one you know it, it would lead you to maybe like run wide run off track something like Dave said and I think that is something also that contributed to um, to the pretty naff racing in, in Moto Two and, and Moto GP um, also the fact that you look at the first part of the track is great onto the back straight but then from turn twelve to the three double rights. I mean, there's just this kind of horrible little car park, accelerate, brake, accelerate, brake. And that's not conducive. It's, it's all a bit like um, Final Sector at Donington Park, um, the car park, as uh, it was once affectionately termed. Um, and I feel that that layout in particular is not conducive to, to good racing. There's no flow to it. It's just stop, start, pick up, accelerate, brake. And... Um, yeah, it's it, it is a shame. I feel like we, we come away from Austin every year, sort of thinking or bemoaning this because everything should be it should be fantastic. You know, the the, the, the kind of the atmosphere, the facilities, the setting. You go there expecting something great, and um, yeah, it just turns out to be a bit of a damn squib, really, in terms of the racing. Adam, obviously, I want to get your thoughts on 
what we're talking about right now, but I also want to get your thoughts on, is it acceptable for a man in his early 30s to say naff and not be pulled up on it? <laughs> yeah, but we got to let Neil off because he's been commentating, you know, most of the weekend. So I'm sure he's exhausted his vocabulary when it comes to, you know. Hang on a second. Hang on a second. I did more hours on the mic than Neil and I'm not saying naff. Unacceptable use of language, Neil. How many how many hours did you do in the paddock no show this weekend, Steve? That has to be factored in too. <laughs> oh, that's fair enough. That's fair enough. That's fair enough. That's a low blow there. That's the anyway, to go to patreon.com forward slash paddock pass podcast where you can sign up for the paddock notes show where sometimes you'll get to hear what I have to say about a race weekend. More often than not, it's going to be Neil and David and Adam that'll give you the insights from the paddock. So check that out. Can I just point out the origins of the word naff? Um, it's from... Uh, God, what, what, what kind of worms did I open up, lads? It, it's from Polari. It's from Polari, which is gay slang, basically, or gypsy slang. And um, it, it's, a, it's short for not available for fucking um, because it's, uh, they, this, it's about a man who is not uh you know not gay so it's actually fantastic you can tell it was a cramp race can't you whenever uh, this kind of uh, content is being dragged into the podcast <laughs> <laughs> anyway adam let's get back on topic give us your thoughts on on why we had crap racing in qatar in qatar and kota even what neil was saying about the track limits was was a good point as well brad binder alluded to it on friday by saying you know trying to keep that consistency on the lap time was also hazardous you know hitting the bumps running wide it was something else the riders had to think about because you know you start to hit the green too much then you're really going to pay for it um i think it's one of those tracks and actually i i vaguely seem to remember asking some riders when i was last there in 2019 where it's better for them to ride than it is for them to race uh, which, you know, of course, in motocross, you get plenty of those kind of circuits, you know, where technically it's it's a real challenge for, for the racer. But in terms of producing the action that people want to see, then it's just quite, it's, it's a place that under delivers. But, you know, it's, it's a classic racing symptom where we always kind of want, you know, the next best thing or the grass is always greener. I mean, in 2019, I think we we're all hankering for somebody to rival Mark Marquez and, and take away some of the, the dominance that he had over the championship. And now we have such kind of parity that's leading to eight, nine, you know, possibly even 10 different winners um, of Grand Prix in one season. Uh, now we almost want a situation where, you know, we don't want to see such equality in, in the classes of like Moto3 um, and Moto2, even though they have obviously been standout riders. <clears throat> you know, if somebody can master the conditions, um, you know, get their right setup, uh, you know, make the ideal choice with the Michelins, then that should be applauded and considered part of the show rather than being condemned as, as you know, just uh, something boring and, and uninteresting. Yeah, I, I think one thing about this track is also that uh, the bumps play a big role in that it, it prevents people from taking alternative lines. You can't take a, a different line through a corner uh, because you don't know where the bumps are or you, you, you have to understand where the bumps are everywhere. Normally, you know, you could try uh, at another track, you might be able to uh, try and attack from a from a different line or run a little bit wide on the exit to try to defend or whatever but if you did that here you never knew what was going to happen you never knew what you were going to hit and you could quite easily sort of run off and so i think that creates uh, it forces people to be a bit more processional but um i mean i get adam's point yeah obviously we want um uh, we want good racing um just going back to why we see not great racing generally in kota i think another thing is just 
because Mark Marquez is so good there. Um, that is one of the things. I mean, you take Marquez out of the out of the racing, and you know maybe he wouldn't have stretched it to to the extent that it was stretched, where we saw big gaps right the way through the top six, more or less. I think uh, Martin and, and Banyaya were the the kind of exception. Um, you know, when Mar- when Marquez crashed out of the nineteen race, we actually had a really exciting finale with Rins and, and Rossi fighting at the front. Um, and I think you could say the same thing about races in the Saxon Ring of late um this year was maybe an exception but the other some a lot of the other years that marcus won at the saxon ring um the racing hasn't been that good just because he's so fast there and i think prior to marquez we always got good racing at the saxon ring in moto gp and just one other thing i think it's it's a you know it, it says a lot about um where we are with grand prix racing at the moment that if we have one round where all three races are okay moto three wasn't dull but if we have a round where there's like two quite dull races we're like whoa what's going on you know even when you look back at um the, the sort of the, the golden age of 500 racing in the late 80s early 90s yeah sure we had lots of fantastic racing in that time but i would say the majority of races every year would be runaways and quite spread out at the front even though they were between heavyweight riders. So I think it's um, it's kind of a testament to the, the quality of racing that we have nowadays, that um, that it's so notable when we have pretty dull racing. Um, and, you know, I think um, a few dull races every year make you, makes you really appreciate the, the great ones. What, um, what are people's opinions on the riders saying, you know, we shouldn't race here, and there was even some talk that, you know, it was unsafe to do so. I mean, Steve, you're a big fan of the, uh, Neil, of course, you're both big fans of the TT. Uh, you know, it's a high level event. There's some world superbike tracks that are also bumpy, um, you know, questionable whether they are fit for world championship purpose. I mean, should riders just, I think Mark Marquez even said something similar. You know, it's a case of you go as fast as you want to go on a place like this, but you still need to go around it. Yeah, we did actually get a question in about this as well. Ad. Anteater32 asked us, in the event that Coda doesn't go through at resurfacing, would writers boycott an event there? And it's always an interesting one to talk about. But the problem with it is, and we had it in Argentina a couple of years ago, when some writers did sit out the action. The problem with it is, your vested interests always get the better of you. If your rival is going to ride, you're going to ride. And typically, when we see riders boycotting an event, it's where they've got nothing at stake. If you're trying to win a world championship and your rival is going out, chances are you're going to say, I'm not going to give him the chance of picking up 25 points. If you're in a scrap for third in the championship and a big bonus from your manufacturer, you're going to say, I'm going to try and get into this race. It's only if you're a bit further down in the championship standings that you're going to be thinking in terms of your own actual health and the conditions you're going to race in because crashes are going to happen for other riders they're not going to happen to you and that's the mentality that all these guys take and it was interesting talking to a few riders in the past whenever we've gone to we've gone to tracks that were a little bit on the limit whether it was in you know whenever i was doing some work in bsb or world sbk moto gp and they all said the same thing and it was where you just have to you just have to go if you're worried about crashing you just shouldn't be out there in the first place yeah, yeah. I mean, the reason they took the TT out of or the Isle of Man out of the Grand Prix uh, uh, ch- Championship is basically because you can't rely on riders to uh, boycott it. Basically, it had to be done for the good of the championship because not everyone wanted to go. Obviously, you know, Ago was said, "I'm not going to race there," uh, but you you have to have a, a much more level play uh, playing field. It's really hard to organise a rider boycott. 
Adam, obviously, this is one of the, the big topics for you over the course of the weekend and the, the safety elements of the track and what went into it behind the scenes. But I think when, you know, as we're talking to riders during the course of the week, this was a big thing where they were talking in terms of the safety commission, the the changes that they want to see happen over a race weekend. Yeah, it was a weekend where the the work or the purpose of the safety commission came to the fore again, Steve. I mean, just for people that don't know so much, um, every Friday at a Grand Prix, the riders tend to gather together late afternoon, round about, I'm not sure if there's a, a set time every Grand Prix, five, yeah, I was going to say five, but yeah. Yeah, so I mean, we we know well because it usually plays havoc with the media debriefs and, and the time where we want to listen to what riders have to say. Uh, they're either hurrying or you know they're they're delayed or whatever. Um, but we had a situation in Texas where you know, for instance, with the Miller and and Mir um, altercation, um, Jack was asked why doesn't he bring it up in the safety commission? Um, you know, and he said he doesn't want to be the rider that complains about other people's antics all the time. Uh, Valentino Rossi came under some criticism because he didn't bother attending. Um, you know, he's obviously jumping out of the championship next year, but you know, is, is it debatable whether a, a rider of his standing, arguably the most popular, well, the most popular rider in the sport, maybe he should be a voice piece for, you know, improve conditions or safety or whatever else. There's a, there's a topic for debate there. Um, Traditionally, like the safety commission has been something where riders have been reluctant to talk about what goes on or what is said behind closed doors. Uh, understandably, a lot of it can be quite sensitive information, um, especially when there are criticisms of the group within the group. Uh, but, you know, I think there was no clear indication whether the riders made an ultimatum over Cotter and whether it needs to be resurfaced in order for the Grand Prix series to return next year. But it seems very much like a forceful demand was made. Um, I'm trying to remember who it was as well. One rider was talking about the, uh, obviously the expense of resurfacing a racetrack. I mean, it's not something, uh, you know, a circuit can invest in. Uh, we saw Silverstone, of course, have to spend many millions after their absolute disaster of 2018, where it was rained off. Um, I think Bruno, as we know, is a, is a track that's needed a new surface for a number of years and has struggled also financially from that aspect. So it's, uh, you know, I, I'm just the safety commission is a curious thing, uh, and I'm really interested to know how uh, how much power it actually has. And I guess we'll see when it comes to news of Cotter for 2022. Uh, yeah, I mean, my, my understanding was that the riders did say basically we're not going to race here next year unless they resurface at least turn two to turn ten. I think Pekka Banyaya said, yeah. Um, uh, it's going to be turn two to turn 10 plus. They have to do the ground underneath it. Um, and also a lot of the riders said, you know, the, the, yes, Dorna were completely behind us. They were completely with us. It is an interesting forum and it also it changes during the year as well, depending on who's there, who's racing, um, that sort of thing. We've seen it go from, uh, riders discussing quite openly what was going on to riders not saying anything about it. Uh, I think periodically they all sort of uh, swear a pact not to speak to journalists anymore. And then uh, one of them breaks the pact and then they all start breaking the pact and then they all swear a, uh, they all get sort of fed up of each other talking about it. And they all sort of, you know, swear uh, swear the pact again. But uh, again, like it, just the example of Valentina Rossi is a good one because Valentina Rossi used to be like a leading light in the safety commission um, and was actually 
quite important at the at the beginning of when it first started. I think a sort of uh, turn of the century, basically. Um, he pushed a lot for a lot of these uh, safety changes, and then 2015 happened, and because Mark Marcus used to go to the Safety Commission, uh, Valentino Rossi basically just stopped attending. Um, I think he came back again after Barcelona in 2016 when uh, Luis Salom uh, died. So there was a, there's been a few moments, but the, you see riders drift in and out, like Fabio Quartararo very very rarely goes to the uh, to the safety commission because he's too busy trying to win a championship um and the, the, the Espargaro brothers are always in the safety commission and i've heard other riders complain about the Espargaro brothers because they spend all their time talking you know they've got lots and lots of ideas and like to share them um so it it's uh, it, it's one of those sort of odd things and i do know that the safety commission dorna erta the fim take that very 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 seriously if the riders are clear if the riders have a very strong um preference a strong belief uh then dorna and uh, the fim will push whoever it is whatever it is to get this change made i do wonder how dorna handle the situation though because if you have a sponsor like red bull you have a market like north america uh you have a circuit with funding like austin texas um but then you have a facility that's not quite up to the job how do you balance the the check with the safety checks uh you know i mean of course they can make demands but you know are those demands met and are they met to a, a satisfactory standard to ensure kind of safe racing it's uh it's a, it's a difficult balancing act i imagine yeah, I think it's also a difficult balancing act with the circuit because the circuit themselves have to make the, the the business decision. Do we upgrade? Do we invest in this or do we not invest this? I mean, Silverstone was a, a prime example. They uh, they resurfaced a second time because they had to because otherwise, you know, the Silverstone would have basically almost been forced to close. You know, they, they had no future. If they wanted to continue as a as a venue, and I think to an extent we're going to see the same sort of thing with the circuit of the, of the Americas as well. Um, if it wants to continue as a racing circuit, they have no choice but to resurface because if they lose MotoGP and if they lose F1, uh, those are their really big money earners. I know um, at Aston they say basically uh, the Dutch TT, the, the MotoGP race, is, is half of their uh, annual income. And if that falls away, then that's basically it. That's basically all of their profit is in that one race. Um, and for Cota, I should think it's fairly similar. Uh, obviously, They've got a slightly stronger hand when it comes to MotoGP because there aren't very many alternative venues. Um, but Formula One, I mean, Formula One has to do all of these street circuits. Uh, Miami, uh, I think they're talking about the, there's uh, there's been talk of a race in New York and various other places. Uh, so yeah, F F one can go anywhere. Um, so there's they can more easily put pressure on Cota to actually change. I mean, I doubt there's actually any qualified geologists in the MotoGP paddock, but I think it was Joan Mir who said that even if the cotter was resurfaced, then three years further down the line, then the same issue with the bumps because of that supposedly clay foundation would, would pop up again. Uh, you know, if it costs $3 million to resurface a large 
quantity of that 5.5 kilometer racetrack then how how often can you spend that like you say dave it's uh, as a business case it just doesn't work out even though when you see those fantastic helicopter shots above cotter i mean there's all sorts of things going on there there's tennis courts there's concert venue um you know they they really try to maximize the space in terms of events but uh, you imagine they they're like you said they don't have many um what's the blue chip or like high profile events like motor gp yeah, I mean, there was an interesting uh, interview with uh, Jarno Zafelli, the uh, track designer uh, uh, on Autosport, where he said basically, "Look, I, I helped solve the de- these these issues with the substrate can be solved. We solved them at Silverstone. We can solve them here, but it has to be done by a specialist company who knows what they're doing. You can't just go and sort of resurface the roads." As ever with anything, Dave, the problem can be solved by having more money and uh, sponsors at paddockpasspodcast.com. You can make sure to get involved. Um, Neil, what about you? Obviously, we're talking about the big things that we talked back from uh, the race in Texas. But uh, for you, other than a hangover, what was it? <laughs> um, and a bit of jet lag. Uh, yeah, it was about the, the race winner. I mean, um, I'm not doing this because uh, I uh, enjoy making my colleagues uh, look silly, but I'm going to bring up the tweet again that uh, David Emmett sent out uh, last week, um, which said that Mark Marquez, quite with some authority, was not going to win um, at the weekend. Um, And, you know, Dave made some absolutely valid points in that tweet. Um, He said that uh, the bumps are bad. He said that the Circuit of the Americas is probably the most physical track on the calendar. Um, And Mark Marquez has been recovering from a career-threatening injury um, all the way through this year. And it's been taking him a lot longer to get over that injury than even he envisioned. Um, And it was only two weeks before we came to Cota that um, the it looked as though Mark was having some serious issues at Mezzano, especially in the uh, the kind of fast rides at the end of the back straight that was that were really hindering him on the bike. Um, and yeah, just uh, uh, wondering, I guess, with um, with Marquez's dominant victory here. I mean, it, it was effortless. I think it was his second most dominant. Uh, victory in terms of race winning margin um, from his seven previous wins at the the, the Circuit of the Americas track. Um, you know, I'm I, I'm wondering now, like. Can can he use this as an excuse anymore? This this injury because this is the most physical track on the calendar. Yet he made this look completely easy. Yeah, I think for me, I've always kind of thought that with Mark coming back from his injury, especially this year, maybe it'll be different next year after a winter off. But this year, he's only Mark Marquez on a couple of occasions. He's just another guy, just another rider for most of the time he's out on track because he can't make those cat-like saves that he used to make and it'll be interesting to see how he recovers long term when he's got the winter and he's able to to fully rest and see how it heals up again because the the nature of a MotoGP season is you're always going to crash you're always going to have knocks and you're not going to have time between the events to really allow your body to recover and I think that's where the big challenge is going to be to see if this mark that we're seeing this year is the mark that we're going to see going forward or if it's the Marquez of old where he could do things that no one else could do. I think as it is right now, the aura of Marquez is gone. And that's one of the big factors as well, Neil, rather than just you know his, his overall health and his fitness. And that's where I think the winter is going to be really important to see how he is whenever we line up on the grid for the first race next year as well. Yeah, I mean, what I got wrong about this was I underestimated the... C- you posted the- it, Dave. That's what you got wrong. 
<laughs> no, but I mean, I I, I underestimate the, the the nature of the circuit. I, I didn't quite think enough about how um, so much there is so much sort of stress on the left hand side and very little on the right hand side. Uh, it's much more of a left hand circuit than I sort of realised, um, and that's basically what Mark was saying in the in, in the press conference that uh, he's fine. He can actually do all of the things that he needs to do with his left arm. He can you know he can press the handlebars to, to counter steer. He can push to get the bike to do what he wants to do. He can't do that on the right-hand side, um, but there are very few places where you need to do that at Kota, um, and so he could get away with it. As we're talking about Marquez, guys, can we please just address the big issue of the lamest podium celebration in the history of MotoGP? Hang on a second, Ad. Hang on a I'm second. Sorry. No, 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 Steve. I'm sorry. I mean, Jet Lawrence, you, you've won a you've won a 250 MX AMA. That's title. in the final segment of the show. We're not jumping <laughs> ahead to that yet. There's only one loser from this weekend, and we'll talk about it whenever we get to the winners and losers section in the next segment of the show. But let's wait until we get to that stage. Let's let let's let's continue just having Neil's chat about his big talking point and and what Mark did. So, at, at what's your thoughts on Mark and his recovery and being able to win a race around a track like this? Yeah, I mean uh, the comments so far, both from Neil and, and Dave, are on the money, Steve. Uh, you know, it's uh, more than once we heard the fact you know the riders were referring to the state of the track as a motocross track and we know how much mark loves uh you know his off-road uh his racing and riding um i think it was one of his most impressive wins certainly since you know what most impressive performances since the end of 2019 uh we couldn't really have seen it coming but i would have liked to i would have it would have if but if some buts of course but you know if jack miller had been able to you know work out his his tire selection or, or be able to stay, sustain the same pace that he did at the beginning of the race all the way through and if pekka bagnaya had been able to find the kind of miller-esque pace at the beginning of the race then the ducati should have given him a closer run for it but uh you know undoubtedly it was you know his record speaks for itself and um you know what a win um, another thing that Mark was saying after the race that was quite interesting was that he was having quite a few physical issues with his left shoulder in Aragon and um, he had done some work with Alpine Stars um, to try and adjust his leathers. He didn't feel he had uh, enough kind of moving room within the leathers so they, they kind of um, buffed out the the, the, the shoulder section on the left-hand side, um, which uh, he said has been uh, some help. And then there was something also he said after uh, his win at the Saxon Ring, the conversation with McDoin, one of the things that he was heartened to hear Mick had experienced was that sometimes you get in the bike and you feel great and you think, oh, I've made massive progress. And then two or three weekends later, you get on and you physically you don't feel up to it, you don't feel there. And it, it's not like a linear progression of of just gradually getting better those days where you feel terrible those days where you feel good and it seems that this one was just one of those times when everything clicked and it, and it felt good um you know dave made some good points about the about the nature of the track not being as kind of dependent on the right side as as maybe he had first envisioned um but yeah i think that's also just a part of um long-term you know, recovery from a, a really serious injury that takes, you know, the region of a year, something that um, Dindouin experienced in 93 and something that Mark has experienced in 9. 
We also had a question in from Paul Leggett and Rob Schmidt on Twitter, and uh, basically they were asking in terms of KTM what happened at the weekend after a big step forward made by Miguel Oliveira in the last few rounds. They were wondering what the KTM riders had to say after a really tough weekend. So, Neil, what was the story with KTMs? Well, I'm not too sure exactly what they had to say on Sunday night, Steve, because there was a few deadlines that were very pressing and uh, there were a few IPAs that were uh, waiting somewhere uh, atop a bar in uh, the centre of Austin. So I I didn't actually quite catch up with them, but I think we have to keep in mind that, um, you know, Circuit of the Americans, this was what their fourth time, only their fourth time visiting what is a a really complex track to get your head around. Um, And I think that probably uh, worked against them. I didn't catch up with uh, with Binder or, or Oliver on Sunday. However, I did speak to Oliver's crew chief um, on Thursday, Paul Trevathan, and uh, was just kind of asking him, you know, what's going on? You've gone from the basically the strongest package on the grid to to, to nowhere, struggling to to get anywhere near the top ten. And he just said, it's a mystery. It's um, it's something that's kind of eating away at all of them. Um, confidence is one of the biggest things. Um, he didn't give the impression that the the wrist injury that Miguel suffered in uh, Austria is that big a deal. He thinks it's more just <clears throat> the fact that since Miguel sustained that, they started to and fro in a bit with setup. They got a bit lost. Silverstone, they were just nowhere near uh, where they expected to be. And he said, you know, the margins are so fine at the moment that all it takes is just a slight loss of confidence and y- you're you're really in the in the shit. So, um yeah, there's no real one big answer that, that that he could he could say. He said it was a, a loss of confidence, a bit of loss of feel. Also, the fact that you know they're still going to tracks like Austin, like Austin for the only the fourth time in their project history, um, and you know I guess the injury is playing a small factor as well. But um, yeah, it's it's it seems to be something of a puzzle even to KTM engineers. No, I mean, also, when it comes to the KTMs, uh, I mean, Neil, you, your point there about Oliveira, I mean, just to put it into context, I mean, Miguel went second, first, second for three races in the middle of the season. Uh, I think he fit, it was 11th place he took on Sunday, and that was his best result from the last five rounds. So, you know, he's not even got into the top 10 since, you know, the nightmare sort of begun uh, the Red Bull ring. But, you know, I think KTM uh, undoubtedly struggling from from qualification. Brad Binder's been the only rider to squeeze into Q2. Uh, that's been one factor, as we can see. Again, we're talking about narrow margins in the class. It seems if you're not in the first three rows, then it's it's definitely a struggle to get into contention for the top five. I mean, while Binder has been able to profit, I think, from a few uh, DNFs and obviously freak results like uh, or freak occasions like we saw in Styria uh, to post some strong, maybe kind of almost delusional results, you could say, because the KCMs haven't really been in a position to win since Oliveira's purple patch. Um, I think the the combination really with the tyres, trying to wait the the medium work, trying to find a compound that's sufficient enough for a one-lap attack uh, really has been at the root of the problem. We're going to take a break on the Paddock Pass podcast and when we come back after the break we're going to talk about the winners and losers from this weekend's racing. Fly Racing introduces the new FL2 glove. With molded hard knuckle protection, this race-inspired glove is equipped with palm and gauntlet sliders and touchscreen compatible fingers. Available in three colors and sizes from small to triple X, the Fly Racing FL2 glove is the perfect answer at the perfect price. Check out flyracing.com to see more. So we're going to look at the winners and losers from this weekend. And Adam, against my better judgment, 
I'm going to jump straight in with the losers from the weekend. I'm pretty sure I know what yours is going to be. Jet Lawrence or the donut? Uh, you know, maybe they're one and the same, or they're not. <laughs> well, um, uh, I met Jet, you know, when he was racing EMX in Europe just before he joined his brother to go to the United States. I mean, Hunter is a hell of a rider as well. He's, I think, he finished third. Uh, you know, in the same motocross championship that Jet actually won. So, um, yeah, just like an 18-year-old goofy Australian kid. But, you know, um, asking Mark to eat a donut on the podium if he won at a track where he's already won six times in the premier class wasn't the most outlandish of... Uh, of challenges i have to say um you know i mean if he'd said to him go up there and have a big huge t-bone steak i think that might have been more impressive but um yeah much much was made of the uh of the donut and i'm just really sad that facebook didn't have his out you know his outage around about kind of you know 3 p.m on 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 sunday afternoon texas time really because that would have spared us all the social media drivel that we've seen since I have to say, Adam, I uh, I would look at this celebration and I would compare it to the celebrations we had in World SBK this weekend. I thought they were quite good. Top Rack went over, swept over the uh, the track limits and uh, gave everyone a, a bit of a laugh about that. And I thought Johnny going down and then doing a big burnout at the same point was was really good. I thought they were good celebrations after a race. A little bit of planning went into it for Top Rack and then a little bit, little bit of little bit of beef then as well with Johnny as well. Like that's what I want to see in my celebrations. It's needle. It's something that what's advice been lacking for so long, and it's great. It's absolutely great, mate. It's great when you you can out you can outstare each other, or you can say some bad words about each other, whatever else. But just like a little nah, little like in infringement. No, no, nah, I'm not no, no, it. no, 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 no. It's no. a grudge. Holding yeah. a grudge is exactly. what you want to see. It, it's been ex- um, to an extent. It actually sort of showed MotoGP up because we had sort of quite a dull race after some fantastic racing in uh, in World Superbike supporting power. I really, really enjoyed the, uh, that and and especially with a little bit of needle afterwards it was great adam you're a journalist grudge is the stuff that you should be living for i've had to deal with six years in world superbikes where everyone's everyone's best mate i think it's great whenever we've got something like this happening well Chaz davis and johnny like to have a go at each other but you know it, yeah it, it well, to be honest to be honest, they have more of a go on, on track against each other than anyone I've ever seen in a championship battle. They beat the shit out of each other every time they're out there. And then you get something like that. So I think it's great. Steve, Steve, don't get me wrong. The top rack and uh, Jonathan Ray dispute is fantastic. Like you say, it's producing some amazing scenes in Superbike this year. But get over the limits thing. It's, it's, it's well, not to, needed. To it's be just... honest, to, to be honest, you can imagine the top rack had planned to do this previously. And then given what happened in Hareth, obviously decided not to do it there so this is something that you'd imagine has been in the back of their mind for quite a while to do same as same as Rossi's celebrations are planned up well in advance you'd imagine this was planned up very quickly after what happened in Magni Corps and, and then this was the first opportunity to do it so when he wins the title is he going to get on the podium dressed as a green piece of pavement or something I mean where's it going to end he's done what he's done this once Adam he's not going to constantly do this as his only as his only celebration Anyway, anyway, David, I'm going to pick my loser of the weekend as being Adam Wheeler because he just can't seem to comprehend that this was good to see some needle out there. Who was your loser of the weekend, Dave? Uh, my loser of the weekend is Pedro Acosta because... Um, no way, Dave. He's the biggest winner. He isn't. He's the biggest... Well, he's the second biggest loser after... Um, uh, 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 
he he could have lost all those points and he could have lost several limbs yeah but he lost 12 points um you know he lost he lost a lot of points uh Dennis Foggia gets on the- but he was lucky to still get any points Dave he was lucky to get any points but um this and is- he's lucky that he's fit enough to be riding at the next race Dave <laughs> god damn it this is this is my segment <laughs> If I'm going to rib Adam about what happened in the celebrations, I'm definitely going to rib any of you, Dave, as well. Yeah, exactly. I mean, well, I mean, Remy Gardner made a, made a mistake of his own uh, accord and, and lost more. But I think, like, just think back. So you changed to Remy Gardner now from Pedro. No, Boston. I haven't. No, 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 I haven't. No, I'm sticking with this to uh, through through thick and thin. But um, uh, if, if you think of what we were talking about earlier in the season, where you know it was, you know, how soon does Pedro Acosta wrap this up? All of a sudden, he's. Uh, he, the momentum is against him. He hasn't had a decent result for how long, Neil? Austria won. Five rounds. Yeah, there you go. That's a lot of races to go without a, you know, a, a proper good result. And it really feels like the championship is slipping away. And I think this can be really, really dangerous. Now, 10 points a, a race he needs to give away. That's, that's a lot. That's still comfortable. But he's 17. It's his first season. Things are not going well for him. I think this was another weekend where it just didn't go the way that it should have gone if you're going to win a championship. Yeah, we're obviously going to talk about this in the Moto3 and Moto2 show as well later in this week. But Neil, just for just for you to give us a quick thought on it as well, because obviously over the course of the last five rounds since that win in Austria, he's only picked up 35 points, only holds that 30-point lead over Dennis Foggia now. And Foggia has been in great form. Just uh, what what do you make of that battle as it's going? I think it's, um, I think it's just a natural thing to happen in someone's rookie season, even a kid as talented as Pedro Acosta. It shows that in a rookie season, you're going to have a spell where you maybe lose a little bit of confidence if a few things don't quite go in your favour. Um, I still think Acosta is going to come out swinging. He doesn't look particularly like he's under a vast amount of pressure. Um, so I wouldn't be saying this is, even if he finishes second, I wouldn't be you know, decrying this as some sort of massive ball job. I think it's more we should be celebrating the fact that he's even in the title hunt. Yeah, also the fact that we go to Valencia for the last race, um, you know, which is going to, is probably the track left on the calendar where he's done the most laps and has the, the biggest amount of experience. I and mean, it's hard to imagine him dropping in the ball there. But um, just a quick word on Sergio Garcia as well. I mean, he's looking, he dropped himself out of, out of the title fight with a crash that, you know, looked as gentle as you like, but just goes to show if you just drop and hit yourself, you know, in a bad way, then, you know, I mean, he was, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Neil, because I mean, you're at the track and might know a bit more, but he had a medical check, was cleared, but then uh, had another scan at the local hospital and he was kept in overnight uh, for observation on a kidney, kidney impact or something. Yeah, yeah, bruised left kidney he had. Um, yeah, and I think it was it was definitely more than a little little bang at. He, he, he essentially went ran straight into the trackside barriers. I think um, so. It was it was a nasty looking impact, and I think he was in hospital for a couple of nights actually. Um, just they were observing him, making sure he was uh, he was okay. But thankfully, he looks to be okay. Um, but yeah, as you say, he's out of the temperature punt now. And uh, Neil, obviously enough, we need to hear your loser at the weekend as well. So who was your your loser? I'm going to go with Remy Gardner, Steve, just because he's been almost immaculate all season long. Um, but he dropped the ball here. Um, first time this year, that um, point scoring run that dated all the way back to uh, Mizano last year has come to an end. Um, and I think it was it was a move that kind of came out of a little bit of frustration. He got really quite annoyed at Cameron Bobier. Um 
messing him up early on and you know Fernandez did his usual disappearing act and Remy just had a whole lot of work to do in his hands and you know uh, he was one of those situations where he had the same pace as Raul <clears throat> second place would have been completely fine um, he still had a 34 point lead coming into Dakota if he finished second he would have a 29 point lead with three races to go that's still a very very healthy advantage coming up to a couple of tracks that he knows and, and likes but now it's down to nine points I mean it's uh I wouldn't want to put money on who's going to who's going to win the Moto Two Championship this year, and um, <clears throat> you know it was a, it was a mistake at uh, just a really unfortunate time. Obviously enough, uh, when we have losers, we also have winners. Neil, I'm going to kick off with you about your winners because you obviously get shortchanged by being the the last man standing on the first round. So, who was your big winner from the weekend? Uh, big winner, Steve, would be um, Jorge Martin, just because I thought um, his performance was, was really impressive, actually, um, and quite unexpected. I hadn't really looked at Martin um, through free practice as a guy that was going to be up there fighting for the podium. Um, obviously, he dropped a fifth in the end uh, as a consequence of, um, of a, having to serve a long lap penalty for cutting the track at turn five, I think it was, during the race. Um, but I was just really, really impressed that he was even up fighting for the podium. Um Top Ducati for most of the race. Um, difficult track for uh, anyone to learn. And Jorge's been having, um, you know, some physical issues that are, you know, still lingering after that horrible crash that he sustained in Portimao back in April. Um, he's saying he's been having some issues with his right the tendon in his right arm. Um, that's causing him some real pain, some real discomfort when he's changing direction. That had been a real problem at um, Aragon and Misano. Um, and, you know, when I heard that, I thought, okay, we're just going to have to ride off this weekend because, you know, that first sector of the of the track turns two to turn ten. That's not forgiven when you're throwing a MotoGP machine from side to side. But, um, but yeah, he was up there, um, top Ducati most of the race. Um, quite unfortunate to miss out on the podium. I thought it was a really, really impressive ride from Jorge. David, what about you? Who was your big winner? My big winner was Fabio Quattararo because he finished ahead of uh, Pekka Banyaya. He had a superb race. Um, I mean, there was no one going to match Mark in the end. Um, uh, Fabio had the best of it. Uh, he had a really, really good race. Uh, he comes away. He finishes ahead of Pekka Banyaya. I thought Banyaya actually rode well in the second half of the race. He came back again, um, but he couldn't really afford to give those points away. He comes away with a 52 points. And 52 points is uh, a little bit over 17 points a race in three races. Um, I think uh, he took a huge, huge step uh, towards the championship and if Fabio finishes ahead of Bagnaia at uh, Misano then that's it he's uh, he's got it sorted and it, it looks like he's only one or two races away from the championship Adam given how you felt about the Marquez celebration were you the big winner from this weekend because you were able to text Cormac about having to take photos of it text Harry about having to tweet about it so surely there was no other bigger winner this weekend than you. Well, thanks for reminding me about Cormac, Steve, because, you know, Paulo Spargaro's uh, constant accumulation of points means I'm nearing the end of our bet that he'll finish ahead of Alex Marquez this year. So those 10 euros are going to be uh, fitting very nicely in my pocket. Um, I, just a quick note, actually, on, on Neil's comment about Remy Gardner. Um, you know, it was telling, of course, I think in, in the TV images that he looked distraught that he had made the mistake, but then... 
you know, he got changed, came back to the pit box. Afterwards, you could see him congratulating the team for Fernandez's win. Um, uh, for me, that just spoke of a class act. I mean, for me, he's still the the, the champion of 2021. Um, you know, Fernandez has been raw speed and, you know, the definition of uh, impressive. But, um, you know, Gardner for me just has that, that kind of maturity and extra kind of uh, decency, I think befitting of a champion um, i mean i don't know what and we're talking about celebrations but i don't know what fernandez was doing on the motor two podium he just sort of dashed off it looked really kind of weird and slightly goonish um are you, but, um, you know, are you saying that remy is the people's champion <laughs> <laughs> i'm not even gonna go anywhere near that phrase dave <laughs> <clears throat> but uh for my winner actually um i would like to go with a name that neil again has mentioned earlier on and cameron bobier uh maybe we can talk about it up on, on you know the paddock pass podcast follow-up show but uh you know it was it was fantastic again just through the tv pictures to see uh, a local rider a native rider excelling i mean bobier's has intimate knowledge of cotter and all those bumps and and the, you know every kind of secret of the layout but uh you know to take that fifth place finish to see how the crowd got behind him um at a time when the usa you know is, is getting slightly closer to having you know a rider in the premier class again i think um sean dylan kelly's already signed up to be in the american racing team as well for next year so uh, the americans are, are starting to get a little bit more of a foothold in motor gp um i think it's also a a promising signal to michael laverty and his you know his ambitions with his british racing team project to, to get that you know established up through the classes you know i think it is possible i think there is talent out there uh you know we don't always have to focus on the traditional territories of spain and, and italy to to get sort of you know decent racing talent straight into into the premier class so uh, well done for bobier uh you know obviously he's not the youngest guy in the class uh, but he has experience and I really hope he can, you know, get some sort of those kind of results again into his second year. Yeah, Bobby with a top five finish and no doubt he'll be one of the talking points on the Paddock Pass podcast follow up show. So keep an eye out for that during the week and uh, keep an eye on patreon.com forward slash Paddock Pass podcast. If you want to support us for three dollars a month, we put up some extra content on that for ten dollars a month. You can become a Paddock Insider and that's where you'll be able to get the Paddock Notes show where we all sit down on a Zoom call at the end of each day and we bring you the latest news from the rider debriefs and from the Paddock. So check that out on patreon.com. And uh, other than that, Adam, thanks for joining us on today's show. David, good to have you back on. Neil, obviously enough, there's no rest for the wicked. We'll be straight into Moto2 and Moto3 shows. And uh, you wouldn't want it any other way. Certainly not, Steve. But first, bit of sleep. Well, you can you can take a little bit of time to get over your jet lag. Um, for everyone else, we'll be back obviously later in the week with a Superbike show as well. So it's a full week on deck for our Paddock Pass podcast editing team. So a big thanks to them for being able to turn everything around as quickly as possible. And until the next time from the four of us, big thank you to everyone for listening to today's show. This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast was produced by Jensen Beeler, David Emmett, Steve English, Neil Morrison, and Adam Wheeler. It was edited by Brian Burnett. Music is provided by The Liberty. All inquiries can be sent via email to team at paddockpasspodcast.com. That's the Neil's moment. No, no, no. no he, had his, he was first. Oh, yeah. You're all okay. sorted, Adam. Don't you worry about that. Just for paying attention, Ed. Yeah, big Steve was running the show. It was, it was really interesting stuff, Neil. Yeah. <laughs>